Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, and welcome to the Ideas Roadshow podcast. I'm Howard Burton, your host and creator of Ideas Roadshow, and I'm delighted to be partnering with the New Books Network to offer you our uniquely eclectic blend of long-format conversations with a wide array of experts across many different subjects. The following discussion is a reformatted podcast version of one of Ideas Roadshow's first 100 film conversations that's available in print as both an individual ebook and as part of a five conversation collection in ebook and paperback. Visit ideasroadshow.com for more details. When someone asks you to think of a Muslim country, what comes to mind? Most of us will think of Iran, Iraq, Saudi Arabia, or Pakistan. But unless you live in Southeast Asia, you probably won't think of Malaysia, say, or Indonesia, the world's largest Muslim country with over 220 million people, both of which, according to the Economist Intelligent Unit's Democracy Index, should be considered as essentially democratic in nature. Given all of that, perhaps it's time to look more closely at Southeast Asia and try to develop a detailed understanding of what's actually going on there, a sentiment naturally endorsed by Jacques Bertrand, professor of political science at the University of Toronto, and the author of, among other books, Political Change in Southeast Asia. So how did you get involved in Southeast Asia? What's, what's the story there? Were you, were, you born in, were you born in Singapore or something? I, I or wish there was, a, there was a fascinating story to tell there. Um, it's, it's a little bit by, you know, just how I got to progress in my academic life, actually. Uh, so I don't have I don't have a whole lot of of um, you know a lot of people who go, get into a region such as Southeast Asia are oftentimes because their parents or, or they went on some sort of right. of um, of uh, exchange program or something while when they were younger and uh, you know you never ask that question many times people don't ask that question if it's a more a region that's more well known, but Southeast Asia, one usually asks, and uh, but I don't have that kind of, of special story to tell, except to say that at some point I was, uh, I was actually an international relations student. Somebody was looking at broad issues across the world, and it just, I just felt like there was um, when you're dealing with that sort of broad perspective, you don't get to know the issues on the ground, and uh, and I didn't have. Uh, a sort of obvious region that I had affinities to, but I did know that I had uh, an interest in, in some places, and I was right. particularly interested in Indonesia because Indonesia was to me a, a, an odd country, uh, a country that um, was uh, you know, seeing uh, seeing it as somebody who didn't know Indonesia that much, but knowing that it had to be an extremely challenging country given that it's an archipelago. Lots of different languages, lots of different peoples, and perhaps it was you know, the fact of uh, growing up in Canada where we grow up with uh, the idea of diversity, we grew up with different languages, with issues around these languages. So to me it was fascinating that a country like Indonesia would have so many different languages and peoples in that it held together as a country. So it, it just intrigued me to start, right. and, and so that's what sort of started me going to Indonesia. But when was this? What, at what, what stage were you uh, at? Was this undergraduate? Yeah. Was this graduate? Stage? I was actually a PhD student. Uh, I started my PhD uh, my first year as a 
as an international relations uh, student, but I already was thinking about um, China, Indonesia. These were countries that I were, was getting interested in. And, uh, <clears throat> and so I, I rapidly thought I needed to get to know a region better. I, I found that dealing with only sort of broad issues, international issues, didn't get me to understand very well the intricacies of, of what was going on in, in, in particular countries. So, you know, I was writing papers on issues of economic development. I did some master's work on international political economy and uh, and you know, it was odd for me to be writing and thinking about economic development without actually seeing on the ground, right. you know, what does it mean when you're trying to understand how the state is trying to develop certain areas or is trying to inject certain incentives to um, to produce more agriculturally or manufacturing or in other right. sort of areas of development. So, so I sort of took a, a little bit of a, of a break and I, I took a, a, a very different tangent at that point. And in fact, I probably uh, in some ways overreacted and went from a PhD student who was doing international relations uh, to a PhD student who ended up writing a dissertation about village politics. Really? And looking at in, the, in, the Indonesia. in Indonesia, in Indonesia, basically. But I still want to I still want to probe you on this because I'm 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 fascinated. So you're at you're at Princeton, right? Doing your PhD. That's right. And you're thinking I'm doing all this general stuff. I'm I'm international relations, economic trends, large grand, perhaps grandiose statements, and so forth that are being thrown. Out. I have to get my hands dirty. I have to see something concrete on the ground, and then. So this is where I'm losing you. And, and then you, you take a dart and you throw it at the wall and you hit Indonesia or something? Or how, do you, how, how does Indonesia come into the picture exactly? Did you, do you think uh, you, large archipelago? I understand logically what you're, what you're saying. Right. You could have landed all sorts of different places. And then did you go backpacking throughout Indonesia and, and do the student thing and look at different villages? And how did, how did that happen? I, I actually went to China. As uh, before my PhD, okay. <laughs> and China was a country that I found fascinating as well for for obvious reasons, being a large country. And I went to minority regions in uh, in China on a sort of a backpacking trip, and and so I was already interested in in traveling right. uh, in Asia and understanding Asia, and that was China was my first foray into into the region. And uh, and I had friends who had been to Indonesia, and you know it was just it was through learning through friends, uh, also reading about Indonesia, just being generally attracted to the region got me reading more about about Indonesia right. and, and understanding at that point how that country was a little different from others. So I actually um, started to learn the language really before I even went. So my first when I first went to Indonesia, I was actually going on an advanced language course at that point because I took a year uh, in my PhD studies to uh, to go to Cornell and do an intensive language I had to go to training Cornell. course. Like Princeton didn't have any. Princeton didn't have intensive language in Indonesian studies. Cornell was a known mm -hmm. center for Southeast Asian studies and had lingual language programs associated with it, mm -hmm. and they had this intensive language program and. Uh, and Indonesian was a was a language that was accessible and uh, that one could learn fairly rapidly, uh, say compared to Mandarin, which, if you're a late starter, it can be quite a uh, a very difficult endeavor for several years to sure. learning Mandarin. The way that in Indonesian, 
Um, you can learn the language. It's, it's phonetic, so you don't, have, you, know, you don't have characters. You don't have to learn the written language separately from the spoken language. And it was a, sort of a, a, an interesting adventure to sort of say, OK, I'm going to learn this for a year, and I'm, you know, I will uh, start looking into uh, working in Indonesia because I was interested in the country. And uh, never thinking that I would necessarily become a specialist and stay stay on for that many years. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, it, it ended up working out that way. But. So I want to get to the many years bit in a second, but just back to the language. Yeah. Um, but I'm ashamed to say I know nothing about this language, although I think in your book there was something that began with a B. How did, is it ba ba Bahasa Indonesia. Bahasa. What that means, Bahasa means language in Malay. Okay. So, so obviously, sometimes in English people call it Bahasa, I see. which is a complete it doesn't mean anything. It means language. Right. Right. So why people refer to it as Bahasa is because it's often been referred to as Bahasa Indonesia, which is the Indonesian language. The reality of this language is that it's, it's, a, it's a dialect of Malay. Uh, so Malay was the lingua franca of all the archipelago, or a good part of the archipelago, if you exclude sort of the Philippines, um, if you include that part of the archipelago, Southeast Asia, and you go into uh, the Malay Peninsula, and of course, all of that is the Malay language as well. Uh, it's simply that Indonesia was created as a country uh, out of a nationalist movement that decided quite consciously to take the Malay that was being spoken across the islands as a unifying, uh, uh, a unifying symbol, if you like, of what made them uh, one people. Right. And so that dialect. Uh, of Malay was then renamed as the Indonesian language. I see. So it is a dialect. So, so you can understand when you go to Malaysia and you hear. I can understand a good part of what's spoken in Malay, Malaysia. I see. <laughs> and and you mentioned the, the phonetics and so forth. Uh, the alphabet is it? The Roman is, alphabet. What is, it is the Roman alphabet. Yeah. It used to be. Uh, at some point, they used Arabic script uh, to write it. Right. But they changed it to. Uh, the Roman alphabet, and therefore, and it's basically once you know how to pronounce uh, Indonesian, you know how to read it. So, it's a relatively easy language to learn in that respect, or at least it's satisfying language to learn at the beginning because you learn rapidly, sure. and then it gets more difficult when it gets to more elaborate ways of of conveying meaning. So you studied the language. You did this intense course in Cornell for a year. Yeah. Well, eight months, and then the last three months were in Indonesia. It was an intensive language where we lived with a family? Uh, faculty, family from, uh, from a local university, and then I continued learning Indonesian there and, um, and actually uh, being immersed, basically, in, in, in this particular family. And in fact, this was very um, interesting because of the families, uh, Many were, were placed in, in, in sort of regular uh, families that were associated with the university, but oftentimes the language of communication, because this was in, in Java, the language of communication at home is often Javanese. So many of the other students didn't benefit that much from their immersion in a family because they, like they, were, were, already they were hearing Javanese <laughs> and not Indonesian. In my case, it was a faculty member who was actually uh, alone and had a lot of students from different parts of the archipelago living at this place doing master's degrees. So it was a, a very nice community to, to learn about different areas of the archipelago 
and also to learn the language uh, because Indonesian was constantly spoken around the, right. around the house. And incidentally, and since you want to know more about this particular trajectory, one of the, or two of the people who were there all the time, who tended to come for lunch uh, and, and uh, were, um, were students, but the students, you have to understand that at the time the master students were oftentimes faculty in their own universities in outer islands and, and therefore um, so they became contacts that, that I developed and where I ended up uh, going to do some of my, my PhD research in, uh, wow. in a completely other part of Indonesia, which is the Malukan Islands. And further so, on. So you quickly found, uh, found all sorts of contacts that, that, yep. that, that would enable you to develop your studies and explore, right. the, explore the country in a far deeper way. And it exposed me to already, even in this family or this context where I live, to the issues that were arising in different parts of Indonesia and to the diversity and even conversations right there about their, their own resentment. For instance, they were from Maluku, their own resentment towards uh, what at the time was a, 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 the military government of uh, President Suharto. But not only that, this was in the middle of Java. Java is the main region of Indonesia and therefore uh, and the majority in the country. And, and so the kinds of issues that would come up uh, around the table had to do sometimes with the resentment of this over-centralization of, of, of the government but also of uh, the Javanese in, in government. So, so you could quickly get your hands dirty. Right. So I knew at that point that I was, you know, it just, it just kept getting more and more fascinating to me. Right. And, and I knew I'd taken a, a small risk of learning another language for eight months, but it was a good one because I already knew that Indonesia was a place that I wanted to study. And, sure. and the more I traveled, well, the more I, I found this country beautiful as well and interesting to explore. I want to broaden from Indonesia naturally, yep. uh, but something you said intrigued me when you were talking about all the different languages, and then you mentioned Javanese. Is Javanese completely different from Indonesian? It is quite different, yes. Javanese, the vocabulary is completely different. I could not understand Javanese at all. <clears throat> so there are levels of language which doesn't exist in Indonesia. That's just one example. So you'll learn three different kinds of, of um, languages in order to be able to speak, for instance, to an elderly person or to, to the sultan or to... Um, and if you're speaking to somebody younger, you often use a different registry of language. What if you're speaking to an elderly Sultan? Do you need to? <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's it's a, sort of a cross at that point, okay. yes. Um, the, I, I don't know if, if you went into this feeling, if you went into this deliberately. Um, and from what you've told me, it seems as happens to all of this, this is a fairly organic trajectory and you said, well, let's do this and let's do that. And then you found yourself in this uh, very interesting, diverse and, and quite different environment. But for me, as, as a non-specialist, when I looked at your book, Political Change in Southeast Asia, it occurred to me that this is a fascinating part of the world because it's so incredibly diverse in a relatively contained geographical region, you have not only 
many different languages, not only many different religions, not only many different political systems. You have histories that depend on colonialism from all sorts of different European powers, be it the Dutch, be it the British, be it the French, be what, what have you. You have places that resisted colonialism. Then, of course, you have the effects of the Cold War in terms of uh, those that were on one side and those that were on the other and, and, and what happened after that. So it's, it's a it seems to me to be a fascinating microcosm of studying all sorts of different factors simultaneously. Were you thinking about this? First of all, do you agree with that? And second of all, were you thinking about this yourself as you became more and more involved in, in living in the region and exploring it? Did you think, wow, this, is, this would be a great place to start to think about all of these different factors, because you see so much variety here in so many different ways. Yes, I mean, I agree. <laughs> <laughs> the, uh, the region is very diverse, and it's, it's its advantages and its challenges uh, as a scholar. Sure. Uh, because to study a region so diverse as Southeast Asia as a scholar, you, you quickly bump into the, the linguistic differences, the cultural differences, um, so when I started to study uh, the region and I was interested in, in Indonesia for its own uh, diversity, yes, I was aware also of how diverse the region was and I found that very, very interesting. But it's, it's intimidating as well. Uh, Southeast Asianists... Um, that's a word? Southeast Asianist? That's, that's what you call it? It is a word, <laughs> yes. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Which is a bit of a, it's a, I'm going to get into the, 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 the challenges of using that term relative to say when we talk about Africanists or Latin Americanists or specialists of the region because you can be a specialist of Africa, you can be a specialist of Latin America and usually you will know at least three or four countries pretty well. And you might be embarrassed that you don't know the other 30 uh, very well but there are certain trends. You can study Africa and there are themes that will come up, such as the colonial history of Africa. And even though it was the English and the French, there's a kind of a commonality, even in the forms of colonialism that occurred in Africa, that, that makes scholars look at Africa and they see certain trends in poverty, inequality, marginalization, that they trace back to a particular history of colonialism, how it evolved, and against which backdrop much of these, Ameri these African societies were. When you, when you confront Southeast Asia, um, each country has, has their countries that come out of um, fairly consolidated uh, attempts at building empires, um, others that were areas with uh, practically no political consolidation before European colonizers came. Um, and, and anything in between. Lots of changes in borders. Uh, some cultures where borders didn't even matter. It was the control over people that mattered and not the borders. So uh, in times uh, when you study Southeast Asian history, you're not exactly sure where did the Thai sort of beginning end in terms of the territorial um, uh, the, the meaning, the territorial meaning. So territory and the meaning of, uh, of states and territory really come much, much later. And, uh, and, and, um, and in some ways, it's, it's the history of European colonialism that establishes uh, the idea of states with borders sure. uh, in, in the area. So w when, when, when we study Southeast Asia, the idea of knowing uh, the region really well 
uh, is oftentimes limited. Many, many people in states Southeast Asia will know one country and then maybe a second. And once we start getting into um, making claims about several countries, we get a little nervous because, of course, you never know three or four Southeast Asian languages. So the depth that you can capture by going from one country to the next you know, gets lost quickly when you can't communicate anymore in, in the local language. Right. So. Well, that's interesting because it reminded me of what I saw on the, on the, some of the blurbs on the back of your book, um, which I find a little bit shocking. I mean, first of all, one has to be careful to trust blurbs. Blurbs are notoriously untrustworthy, <laughs> but, but nonetheless, I, I turn to the back of, of your book, and I see all these blurbs. Like, finally, somebody's written a sweeping account of, uh, a comparative account of, uh, of all these different countries in Southeast Asia. It's remarkable what this guy's done because he's able to compare and contrast and examine political trends and economic trends and historical trends and cultural trends on more than one country at a time. And I'm thinking, why is that remarkable? <laughs> this seems to be a fairly standard. I would imagine there should be dozens and dozens of books out there, but from the, from the blurbs at least, the potentially untrustworthy blurbs, it seemed like this was almost a revolutionary act that you were doing and, and maybe uh, so first of all, question, because I, I realize I should come to questions when I'm doing this. Um, is, that, is that unusual? Is, is it as unusual as the blurbs are implying that it actually is? It seems like it is. The blurbs are flattering, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> the blurbs, as you, as you correctly note, might be sometimes a little exaggerated. But they do convey what I was trying to say, is that there are few who have attempted to look at Southeast Asia in such a a broad comparative view because uh, it's one thing to compare lots of countries. Many people, many political scientists do. This is what we do in political science, we, a lot of us. We, we compare and we look at, at factors. And, and, but when you're looking at factors of explanation and you're looking at certain trends, you're thinking about democracy or about conflict, and you're looking at many different countries, you're always at a certain sort of um, I wouldn't say superficial, but you know, you're at a certain level of analysis that allows you to do that, but it's also, your, it's also the limitation. Once you start delving into, into differences and in detail, that, that quickly becomes impossible to do. But it's still feasible in some regions. You can still deepen and have a sort of a regional and in-depth kind of look at certain countries when, when, when Historically, there's a lot of parallels, or culturally, or certain patterns of economic change are similar. What was challenging for anybody trying to compare in Southeast Asia is that the more you deepen your understanding of countries, the more what, what comes out is their difference. Right. So when you're trying to compare, uh, if, if you, you want to be able to say something meaningful about what's similar, what's different, and why, it's quite a challenge because the, the, the contrasts become so, so large. So I think where the blurbs, uh, the assessment of the book was really that, that what I tried to do, and perhaps I did it in a, in a fairly successful way, is try to do a bit of both, is really try to look at the region and think about why is it that the region looks the way it does politically? Uh, why are some countries democratic? Why some of them are authoritarian? Why seem some have changed rapidly and become sort of almost, for at some point we were talking about the new tigers uh, of Asia and those that were 
clearly um, rapidly developing and, and having very high growth rates, and then others were lagging behind. So one could look at that level, but also trying to understand uh, the depth of, or, or a little more in depth, looking at you know, why is it that, uh, say, uh, Indonesia, with the particular history it has, uh, can can manage to develop economically, whereas a place like Cambodia ended up in in war and destruction and right. and, and all sorts of division. So right, I want to get to the the primary grouping that you do because of course you have to impose some sort of order and you mm -hmm. have to impose some sort of uh, beginning of, of structure to examine things. And every time you try to do anything, uh, you run the risk of perhaps oversimplifying, putting things in the wrong box, and so forth. But before I do, I want to ask you a very specific question, which is. Very comprehensive, very impressive uh, for the whole region, but you left out Brunei. Do you have something against Brunei? Are you an anti-Bruneiite or something? Or what's, what, do you have a thing against Brunei? I mean, what's, what's, what's the problem with Brunei? Why is it not, not in the book? Uh, I, I don't have anything against Brunei. <laughs> I've uh, never met anybody. It's like, you no, know, I guess if I had really wanted to be completely exhaustive, I think in the end it, it came down to what could I leave out? And Brunei I could in a way because it has, and I'm going to say it has such a unique history. Everybody has a unique history right. in, the, uh, in the region. It's it, because it was in the end the, the tiniest country uh, with not a whole lot to explain in terms of change and uh, the limitations imposed by a publisher that tells you there that here's the length of the book and there's already a lot I was trying to get in there. I was being so. a bit facetious, but it just, just <laughs> seemed, you know, it's this little place, I'm looking at the whole region, yeah, and I think I he's doing everything and, and he left, missed this one I little, little, little corner. Yeah. But anyway, the, the, the main distinction uh, structurally that you make, uh, it seems to me, is between what you call uh, capitalist countries and, and state socialism and, and authoritarian stability. And, and this seems to me, correct me if I'm wrong, but this seems to be the, the legacy of certainly structurally the Cold War that you have the countries that were part of, I'm not sure if we call them Eastern Bloc now, but part of the, the, the communist world, namely uh, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and uh, I'm missing one. Um, uh, Burma. Burma, thank you. Um, and, uh, and the other six that I won't try to mention off the top of my head. Well, I guess I should mention them now because we're, we're supposed to be uh, doing this. But you, you compare uh, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, and Burma with Indonesia, Thailand. Let, let me see if I can get this. <laughs> um, so uh, Indonesia, um, Thailand, Malaysia, the Philippines, um, East Timor and um, see, I know I missed one. Um, Singapore? Did Singapore. I mention that? Okay. Anyway, so um, and the important thing, rather than seeing if I can remember what what these countries actually are, is that as I said before, one has to make some sort of imposition of distinctions in order to start making comparisons. It seems to me, as a as a lay person, and so you're saying, right. Here, uh, here we can look from the economic data, we can look at the political data, we can look at how these places developed, and we can start to impose some sort of structure for examination purposes in terms of grouping the countries in this particular way. So my question to you is, 
when you when you did this and presented uh, uh, facts in this fashion, was this completely accepted by your colleagues? Did they say, oh yes, that's a reasonable way to even begin to proceed, notwithstanding all the caveats that you had? Or were people saying, no, 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 you really shouldn't have grouped things this way, that was, uh, you're, you're oversimplifying, you're putting things in the wrong boxes and so forth. Is that, or is that a common distinction in the field? I think in the field there would be a common understanding that the state socialist countries had a very different experience than what was the, the other countries which the capitalist uh, right. market-oriented economies and, and also political grouping because the original ASEAN was actually, uh, so the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, even politically when it tried to cast itself as a, as a regional entity, it was only the, the non-communist states uh, that, that started the, the region. Right. So um, I think most scholars would, would not, would not uh, quell with that distinction. I guess the, the, the big question is, is um, where they might have a bit more of an issue is that I found that a lot of the, the scholars who emphasize this difference emphasized too much the role of the Cold War. So I think the Cold War was obviously a determining um, uh, period of history that influenced the direction of many different countries in Southeast Asia and elsewhere. Uh, and obviously, one of the reasons why Southeast Asia became a region of study, a very strong region of study in the 1970s, the Vietnam War. It took so much interest trying to understand why, uh, what was happening in Vietnam and the effects of Vietnam, that that was one of the reasons why um, uh, many U.S. universities invested a lot in understanding Southeast Asia during that period of time. So if you try to understand <clears throat> some of the, the centers and the scholarly work that was done uh, from the 70s onward, that had a lot to do with that, the role of the United States in, in the region and, and uh, the Vietnam War itself. And, um, the Vietnam, and as an extension of the Cold War. But I like to think of it slightly differently as well. I like to think of it as the history of the evolution of big ideas, big ideologies uh, in the 20th century. And I think, uh, in a way, there were competing ideologies. So it was not only at a, at, a, um, at a level of real politic where the United States and Soviet Union or China at some point had their, their interests. It's also the evolution of how people who were trying to form new states, where they were getting their ideas from. Right and movements that were trying to liberate themselves from colonial rulers where they get their ideas from. And, and that, that predates the Cold War by sure. a lot. So when we go back and we understand uh, the origins of, of Vietnam or the origins even of, of Indonesia, there's this constant debate uh, between those who are thinking that nationalism can be a template of some sort to create new countries. Uh, nationalism from the perspective of the idea of, uh, of self-determination of nations when they were opposing colonial rule. So that's the nationalism of, that, that is seen as a liberating form of nationalism, one that, that struggles against uh, colonial rulers. And one cannot understand a country like Indonesia without understanding that it comes out of a very strong anti-colonial nationalist sure. movement, and that was the rallying form. In the same way, when we think about Vietnam, uh, Vietnam is both a combination of this sort of nationalist um, 
attempt to liberate themselves first from the French and then secondly uh, the, uh, the, the, the United States. But that comes out as well uh, of a, of, um, of a uh, trajectory that had both strands, sort of nationalist, those who, who, who believed in a sort of a nationalist kind of, of liberation and those who, who then uh, took the ideas of uh, communist ideas and, and, and saw in that a, 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 a template for organizing society differently. So, so when we look at the histories uh, in the region, um, it's not just where the United States and the Soviet Union were fighting proxy battles. That's a large part of the story. But it's also the story of these movements who were searching for how they were going to express their political identities. And, and they, these were struggles, obviously. Right. In every single country, even in countries that became strongly capitalist, you have in Indonesia, you have in Malaysia, at different points in time, uh, uh, some, some strong communist movements that were trying to offer a very different form of template. Now, they lost out there, and nationalists won in Indonesia. Something different emerged in Malaysia. Right. But, um, but then in Vietnam, uh, that was a, the important uh, strand that eventually won out, of course, after lots of war and division. Right. I'm also thinking in terms of in terms of these distinctions. So there's the Cold War aspect of it, but there's there's also this this basic aspect of authoritarianism. And let me be very concrete. So so uh, and not from a scholarly perspective, because I'm by no means a scholar in the field. But to the to the man on the street, um, somebody would hear something like, "Well, there's a military junta which is ruling this country, and then there's a military coup that takes uh, that happens over here." So the there's, a, there's the junta that's ruling Burma or Myanmar or whatever, and then, oh, there's a military coup in Thailand, and you're thinking, well, it's all kind of the same, right? There's a military government that's actually in charge and is executing things. You don't have democracy. You don't have rule of law in the sense that we understand rule of law. And, and in terms of your categorization, one is on one side and one is on the other side, and I'm just saying, you, uh, do you understand where I'm going with this? So, so, so it's... Um, it, it, it seems like these things could actually be, uh, it, it's not necessarily such a clear distinction uh, from somebody who's looking on the outside because you can start drawing uh, from a geopolitical perspective, you can say, well, it's really the same thing. You've got the military guys who are actually in charge. So you're making a distinction. One is calling it state socialism or capitalism or, or whatever Slork decides to do one day. But, on the, on the street, in the villages, you have the military guys who are actually in charge. And then another country, you have a military coup that takes over there. Anyway. Um, well, I think that the, you know, let's see where you're going. The, the, and, it, and it's true. I mean, the military has been a very strong institution in many of these countries. And that's the reason why many of these states were actually strong strong states, but there's, there's a very strong distinction in countries that are state socialist. And, and, and there's a reason for having used state socialists, actually. I, because communists would be a bit, a bit of a misnomer because um, we associate it with so the standard communist line where you had the official communist party that would then have affiliations with China or the Soviet Union. But Burma, slightly different. They chose their own way. Sure. Then, uh, th and and uh, it was very much a military first, and then with a kind of 
ideology of the Burmese way to socialism. So they sort of took uh, some of these ideas out of the communist template, if you like, mainly cutting themselves off economically and uh, having uh, the government and the military by extension own a lot of the industries. But first in and country. foremost, predicated on a military but, coup. But predicated on a, on a military coup. So, so that, in a sense, puts Burma in a, or Myanmar in a funny category because, because although it has this history where for more than 10, 15 years it, 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 it saw itself as socialist, it, it had its own brand. Right. And, um, and it was certainly a military first government. So the fact that the military, even once it started to abandon some of these socialist principles, in fact, what they tried to do was create a kind of communist party, uh, the Burmese Socialist Program Party, uh, after they were in power. Uh, and, 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 as res and use what has been the strength of a lot of these countries, which is uh, the use of an extensive political party as a way of keeping control over masses. Now, the BSPP was never that strong. It really was the military that was strongest. Uh, and so when they started to, to move away from, from uh, many of these practices, and when, for instance, after 1988, uh, they, they abandoned all of of uh, the BSPP and the, the ideology that came with it, and they were much more under the slork, they were much more of a, of a clear military junta with uh, continuing to control industries, not in the name of any kind of ideology, but in the name at that point of right, financing their military and the military <laughs> government, right? right. And, and it was much more blatantly right. that way. Right. But if you compare, say, to a country like Vietnam, Vietnam, why has the military been so strong? It, it, it's because the Vietnamese uh, come, I mean, it was probably the only, really, aside from China, uh, the, in Vietnam, you really, when they call it the revolution, it was really a civil war. It's that the Communist Party gets built up at the same time as military forces are trying to gain control of the country. So you could very, you can't separate very well military and Communist Party uh, in Vietnam, and therefore the military remains strong, but always with the Communist Party being very strong as well. And that, that remains to this day, and therefore the authority of the Communist Party over the military remains uh, fairly strong, although they're, they're fairly equal. Um, and that, that, that's, so the, that means that debates internally that have to do with where's the economy going to go, should the state be involved, should the state own enterprises. I mean, you had militaries that were... Sorry, I should have turned turn that off. <laughs> I should have turned that off. Sorry. So where was I? That means when the... So the militaries, right, uh, once you get to, to a place like, uh, like Thailand or Indonesia, which had very strong roles for the, the armed forces, uh, the armed forces were always hand in hand, right after independence. This is going to start again. <laughs> I think it'll be okay now. You don't hear this, right? Oh, is it? Oh, okay. is it? it was vibrating. Okay. Sorry. So you don't want to detach yourself from your phone. You seem uh, you can just put it put it over there or something like well, that. Well, it's going to be worse. You'll hear it vibrating there. Okay. <laughs> so the 
when you get to Thailand or to Indonesia, the, the history of the armed forces uh, and their role in politics um, is, is similar in that they had a, a role in the initial in state creation. So the, the Thai military is probably the earliest milita modern military in Southeast Asia, having overthrown the monarchy first in 1932 before reinstating it. Uh, but they became intrinsically uh, linked to, to the evolution of, of businesses and, and economic growth in the country. The same can be said for Indonesia. Indonesia's military was the instrument of what uh, they called their own uh, revolution, which basically was a, a anti-colonial struggle against the Dutch. But, um, but uh, once victorious, it was recognized that they played a strong role in, in maintaining uh, Indonesia's uh, integrity. And, and, sure. and nobody really questioned that they could play a role, some role in politics and some role in, uh, in the economy. And, and actually, up till today, uh, it was even sort of a common practice that they would have their own businesses uh, in order to fund themselves and, and, and as a supplement to, hmm. to state funding. So, so the history, so yes, I mean, in some ways you can say uh, the two places are, are similar in that you have militaries that are potentially, uh, yes, in power in one place and the other, and it's similar, but these militaries are uh, against the backdrop of um, an, a role that they've played in society or how they've been tied to certain uh, economic um, ways of organizing society that are very different. Sure. And, well, the structure of the whole society, as you pointed out, is completely right. different. The culture is different, the history is different, the exactly. orientation is different. Um, and, and again, this, to me, this gets to this idea of, of a wonderful laboratory mm -hmm. to, be, to be examining uh, various ideas, various concepts, if, uh, as, if political science is to be a science, and maybe that's something I can ask you later on, but if political science is to be a science in the way that I understand science is, then one should be able to form theses, hypotheses, one should be able to test them, one should be able to say, well, if this is considered to be maybe not an ironclad law, but certainly uh, a statement which has a tremendous amount of validity, statistically speaking, we should be able to check it here, we should be able to see it here. And you do this throughout your book, and I'm not sure, it seems as if you're almost trying to convince yourself of some of these things. I want to, I want to point them out. And, and, and the, so, so this was quite noteworthy to me, because at the beginning you say, well, there's this understanding that, uh, generally speaking, and I'm paraphrasing, so correct me, because I'm paraphrasing in front of you if I'm wrong, but there's this understanding in, uh, in, in modern political theory that the middle class grows and becomes more and more prosperous, and this has a positive effect on stimulating democratic change and democracy. So you say, well, let's take a look, like any yeah. good scientist would, and let's look at these different regions, and let's see if that's actually happening. And my sense is you say, oh, well, actually, not really. That didn't really have, that's a, what, where are the places with the strongest middle class? Well, look at Singapore. That's, those guys are doing really, really well. Look at Malaysia. They're doing pretty well over there. And, and does that actually hold up? And doesn't seem to hold up really all that well. So are you at the stage as a political scientist where you can say, you know what, this, this statement which seems to be, if not a golden rule, something that at least is, uh, is near universally accepted amongst my colleagues, 
might actually just not be that way at all. Yeah? Do you say that? So, I mean, I'm going, to, I'm going to try to push you a little bit here because I'm, I'm going to try to help you make political science a real science because you guys have to go out on a limb. You have to, you have to say stuff. You have to, you have to asking the wrong person yeah. to make a strong <laughs> statement that, uh, that political science is a, is a really uh, rigorous science. Uh, I mean, I believe in the endeavor of political science as a comparative endeavor and to think about factors of explanation like does the middle class, right. when you develop a, a strong middle class, does it lead to, to uh, more democracy? I mean, I've always, in all my work, even though I, I village politics in Indonesia, I compared villages. If I, if I worked on regions, I compared regions, sure. I compared countries. I actually believe that we can understand um, uh, change through understanding certain factors and compare why in some circumstances, they seem to, to operate in the same way, and then why they differ. So if we think about the middle class, why is it that the middle class uh, thesis in political science doesn't do too well uh, in, in the study of Southeast Asia? Well, you can have two answers to this. One is the political science answer, and it's to say uh, we need to add more factors of analysis that can allow us to understand the context under which the middle class will actually produce these kinds of... In other uh, words, our thesis so is right we're not, by definition and factors. we just have to find a way to... Well, we, we didn't look at, you know, the right way. The, the, enough factors, right, that were interacting with uh, a strong middle class. Right. So it's impossible to be falsified, so, in other words, right? So there's no way our thesis can possibly be wrong because we just have to keep working until we find the right factors somewhere. We're never going to be at a stage where we say, oh, that's wrong. But that's not your that's not your view, presumably. No, I mean it's 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 not my view. I mean I think that's where you know political science becomes a probabilistic science. And yes, we're not going to have uh, a, a a strong uh, we're not going to have a, a theory or a theoretical proposition when can 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 prove under all circumstances. Sure. Right? I mean, at some level, we just can't. The social world doesn't work like that. So one way to understand the social world is to try to understand through factors of explanation. Another is to is to understand a, a little bit more the the history and where and and follow how factors work and how they interact with uh, particular cultures, political particular political circumstances uh, in in the region or in the country that we're looking at. So anyways, I want to come back to the, uh, the middle class since yeah. you asked me about it. And, um, and uh, so if we think about um, why is it that it's failed in the context of, of, um, of Southeast Asia, like I said, the revisionist or a revisionist political science view would be to say we were wrong because we didn't actually think about many instances in which, for instance, the working class has been much stronger, or it's been the business elite that has been important. And here, we can see the experiences in Southeast Asia allowing us to think more carefully, is it really middle classes as we understand them as um, sort of that middle income tier, professionals, students, and others that might be, what's the mechanism, right? Do they? demonstrate in favor of democracy, um, or uh, does it include uh, a segment of the business elite? Uh, now the business elite, and I make that point in the, in, the, in the book, oftentimes has very different kinds of interests. And you see both happening in, in Southeast Asia. Uh, you see a business elite in Thailand 
becoming very much favorable uh, to democracy because uh, a lot of the conglomerates, large corporations that were doing really well under authoritarian rule were based in Bangkok and large cities. And as you had business interests rising in rural areas and forming their different centers of interest, they were interested in opening up the spectrum. So they become, right. in effect, a, you know, a force in, in, in favor of, of democracy. But you have, in other uh, countries, um, they tend to be more conservative. Uh, and if the economy is favoring their interests, they tend to uh, basically favor the government that is serving their interests. So when you have a country such as Singapore uh, or Malaysia, where much of the business interests are tied to the stability and continuity of the regime, they're certainly not going to be pushing in favor of change. So that's, that's sort of the business class side of, of the equation. Um, another factor, though, is the middle class uh, on its own. Uh, how does it express change? It expresses it through um, political pressure of different kinds, getting involved in political parties, being critical, demonstrations. So where some will sometimes uh, find that uh, there's an argument for the middle class is where it doesn't get captured politically, where somehow these are that you get more and more people who are uh, in a society that's becoming more and more diverse, they have a whole lot of interests, uh, and they have no political voice, they have no vehicle to express their voice. In some ways, when you look at a place like Indonesia, uh, the middle class argument works uh, in, the, in this way. Why? Because you had 33 years of economic growth under the New Order regime of President Suharto in Indonesia. Uh, but the political channels remain pretty much limited and the same. Uh, if you join the main government party, Golkar, and, and rose through its ranks, you could have a voice. But it was a very stifling environment where you could, where, where uh, bringing in new ideas, trying to adapt to new situations was, was usually quite difficult. Um, that being said, the major reformist movement that led to democratization in Indonesia actually did follow that trajectory, but it took a lot. It took 20 years yeah. or 15 years of of of, of basically uh, reformists uh, starting to think critically from inside the regime to basically push and change the regime at the end. So the the regime like like Suharto's Indonesia was a regime that 30 years later was still, for instance, um, accusing people of communist sympathies if they opposed the government in any significant way through demonstrations in the streets. Uh, in a day when this was post-1989, uh, by, by the idea that there were still communist threat in Indonesia was ludicrous. And so for a middle class, an educated, increasingly educated number of people, the, the rhetoric of the government, the, the actions of the government, it simply became more and more constraining. Even though some of them profited, obviously. They were, in some ways, employees of the government. Some of them profited from, from corporations that were, that were associated uh, with the regime. If we think of Singapore and Malaysia, what, may, what distinguishes them, in some ways, is that so many of the middle class are tied to the to the regime, mm -hmm. and therefore, 
And, and so when we try to understand this, we need to understand some of the unique history, Malaysia, for instance, a history of ethnic division. And so I'm constantly going from more unique factors and more general factors. But you so, see, this is, to me, as a non-specialist, this is actually what's interesting to me. So I was teasing you a little bit when I yeah. was pushing on the political science okay. revisionist side. I'm not a big fan of revisionism of, of any particular flavor. Um, but I, but I, I guess what it boils down to is I'm not a big fan of putting people into boxes or having pat theories uh, when it comes to such incredibly complicated scenarios that, uh, that involve sociopolitical scenarios, religious scenarios, cultural scenarios, all the, all the rest of these things we were talking about and say, here is the golden rule. You know, the middle class will become more and more successful economically and this will lead to greater democracy. There are two reasons why this, this rankles with me. Uh, the first reason is that, it, uh, that again, it just seems, it seems too pat and it seems like something that at the very least necessitates a great deal of empirical study to see if that's actually the case. Mm -hmm. The second thing is, it seems to be very, very sure of itself, because there seems to be an implication, first of all, not only that this will inevitably happen, but that democracy is a good thing, that this is a good thing, and that we all understand what we mean by democracy. And so again, there's this simplistic form of, of these universal laws. And what intrigues me about what you're doing is, you're saying, from the first perspective, well, let's actually look and see what's happening. Let's look at the places that, that are doing very well uh, economically. Let's look at what, where the middle class is actually being successful. Let's see if that's having that effect that according to the, the first order fairly simplistic theory it should be having. And let's look at the subtleties and say, well, actually, it's not really quite that way. It, it seems to be against what we would expect. And so let's, let's dig a little bit deeper in, in that. And, and to me, that... That's interesting, not only because you're actually going out in the world and seeing if, <laughs> if these laws are correct or if these laws are, are, are not correct, but it also means that, that you can start exploring that there might be other ways to do things, because it seems there's, there's a little bit of arrogance and a little bit of hubris to, to start imposing these laws, because of, behind them, and maybe you can correct me, but my sense is behind them, it's like, well, this is how you guys should behave so you can be like us. That's, kind of, that's, that's the reading that I have. You know, we all want to turn, you, this is the way it works so that you can wind up like Germany or you can wind up like the United States, right? And our, hey, are you going along that particular trajectory or are you not? And what's interesting to me is, well, they're not like that and they are very different and maybe there's something we can actually learn from them rather than trying to put them into that filter. So that, that's my perspective on things. Does that make mm -hmm. any sense? Or? Well, it makes sense. I, I'd, I'd like to look at it from two different angles, right? The first angle is when we're trying to study political phenomenon, political change, we have to have a vocabulary. We have to have something of that course. we can compare. Of course. What I resist, and um, although I'm sympathetic to history and I'm sympathetic to cultural differences, what I resist is the idea that what we're telling is a story, right? Because that's what in the end happens if you emphasize too much diversity. Um, and you're looking at, so why is it that Cambodia is in the situation where it is now? Or why is it that Burma has now um, had a military in charge, now it's maybe going towards democratic politics? And then one route to go is simply to study the intricacies of Burma itself, try to understand every particular pattern historically, 
and from there to, to understand current circumstances. The limitation of that approach is that there's, there's nothing to, to, there's no soundboard. How do you choose what's important? Sure. Why would you emphasize the military or the middle class or economic growth rates or other factors? Which is why the, the endeavor of political science, despite its limitations, uh, allows us to look probabilistically at why some factors appear to, to, to work uh, to understand a certain processes. So when we think about democracy, we think about economic growth. We think about role of elites uh, in particular ways. We think about uh, certain uh, factors, mass mobilization. Does mass mobilization tend to, to produce democratic outcomes? Uh, and 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 by by understanding these processes in in a, in a comparative manner, it's you know it it allows us to have at least analytical tools from which we can then see why uh, it, it works and doesn't work. But you're right, I, and I agree with that. The perspective that we have to be careful in not imposing the a normative perspective that comes with it, a perspective where. You know, we believe there's a certain trajectory that societies are taking or should take and become, uh, for instance, democratic in a particular way that we're thinking is uh, the right way. Uh, what do I mean by that? I mean, um, political science was accused 30 years ago, 40 years ago, of, of having exactly that kind of uh, agenda. Right. And it comes back regularly uh, that a lot of scholars who study democracies because they'd like to see democracy across the world. And uh, there was oftentimes a debate about, um, you know, a few years back, about the, the end of ideology and that all countries were going to become democratic and that democratic in a sort of uh, American or liberal democratic uh, form. I, you know, I agree that there's a danger in this kind of analysis to think that um, that, that the scholarly work has this kind of agenda behind it. But I think at the same time, uh, one can do so with a bit of, a, of an analytical distance. So at some level, and I tell my students this, when I'm talking about democracy, even in this book, it's certain parameters. We don't talk about democracy as, uh, in analytical terms, with a whole package that comes with how we understand a particular society like Canada or the United States. Uh, there are certain parameters, uh, certain freedoms to participate, uh, uh, elections that are free and fair, uh, rights that go with that. If you can't, so, if you can't create uh, freedom of association, freedom of the media, uh, how can you have uh, free elections? To say that elections per se are actually putting a stamp mm -hmm. on uh, a better form of, or a different, a, a, a certain form of government, I, th I think is to say, uh, is an exaggeration. I mean, elections are a mechanism for choosing leaders. It's, uh, we, we live, and all authoritarian states like to call themselves at some point democratic, or to at least play the, uh, make the point that they are accountable to their people. Because the modern state is built around accountability to one's people, whether one is communist, whether one is uh, authoritarian in certain ways. Most governments m make, at least in a rhetorical way, sure. uh, the argument that they're, that they're accountable. So I don't think there's many, many qualms in the world that, that the mechanisms for accountability are an important form. And that's why there's a lot of times elections are, are run in authoritarian states, because 
it's the only means that they can at least try to get support or try well, to get some give, sort of... Well, they can give lip service to the idea. They give Every, lip service everybody to the believes idea. Everybody believes the idea. Sure. But, but, but sorry, but for, for me as a... Uh, I, I, I slightly differ in, in terms of what I'm expecting from a scholar. You're a scholar in this, uh, in this field that it's completely reasonable that you have a different perspective. But let me be clearer for me. I have no problem with you as a political scientist wanting to have a view and say, you know, democracy is, is a great thing to have. We, sh we should all be more democratic, or we should all be more like this, or we should all be more like that. For me as a guy on the street, I think that's great. I, I don't have any problem with that whatsoever, as long as you're conducting your research in a, in a fair, objective, reasonable, rational, scientific way. I'm all, I'm all for opinionated scholars. I don't have the slightest problem with that. But I, I think what what starts to rankle me personally is this descent into this cliche where you're mouthing these, these sentences and you're throwing these words around where it's not even clear what we mean. So it's not even clear what we mean by democracy. So that, let, me be, let me be more specific and try to give you a sense of, I, I guess, what frustrates me on the other side. And, and, and you're actually not the person frustrating me because one of the things I, I quite enjoyed about your book is you're exploring these very ideas. You're, you're saying, here's this cliche, or you're not using the word cliche, but here's this basic thesis that we've all taken for granted, does it actually work? We also understand, you mentioned mass mobilization before, there's this understanding out there that the people take to the streets and somehow precipitate democracy. Is that really, if we look carefully enough, what's actually going on? Or were the seeds, structural seeds, actually established by some other means? So you, you are actually looking at, at, at what's happening. But let me get back to my example. So, uh, one of the things that you point out sometimes as, as a sign of a semi-democratic, I don't know what the words are, soft democratic, not fully democratic society is gerrymandering. So you're, you're mentioning these, these people will constantly rejig the electoral boundaries and will group things in a particular way and will, will structurally create the means by which they can perpetuate the regime. And I'm thinking, that just sounds like the U.S. Congress to me. They do that all the time. All the time they're doing gerrymandering. And so when we're starting to, to make evaluations of what democracy actually is and, and, and how these societies should actually be, it seems maybe we're not looking critically enough or maybe we're not defining things critically enough. But uh, I don't actually mean to be assailing you. I'm, I'm giving my, my man on the, on the street for you because it seems to me in your book, you, you are actually doing that. You're, you're looking very carefully on what the cultural factors are and what's actually happening on the ground. Does that make sense? Yeah, I, I think that when we think of democracy and authoritarianism on a sort of two opposite categories, it becomes problematic. When you think about it as a, as a spectrum, there's a lot in the middle, right. in the, sort of a gray area. So to me, there's no qualms when we say, was Burma under the military regime, a regime that if you ask Burmese, they would be happy with, and they of would course. see this as an alternative there's, there's way of no life? No, of yeah, course, of course not, right? If you ask Singaporeans, under Lee Kuan Yew for about 10, 15 years, was this a regime that they could live under and that they found there were advantages? You would find several people would be supportive of that. Sure. And, uh, and would buy in to what Lee Kuan Yew in Singapore 
used to strongly make as his argument that here was a tiny little island that was impoverished and through his management, for better or worse, the society became wealthy and for many of Singaporeans who became wealthy under those years, they saw, they, they bought in the fact that there was a trade-off. Um, was it necessary that Singapore have the kind of restricted laws, tight control from the state? When I talk about gerrymandering in the book, uh, where I have biggest problems is a place like Singapore where it's one thing to gerrymander in, in Canada, the United States, where you still at least have several parties that can win <laughs> elections. So they did but it's another when you have, uh, when, when you're sure. gerrymandering to basically avoid having five or six uh, seats go to the opposition. Sure, but you understand my oh, point, right? Yes, I mean, right. So you, it's a matter of degree, clearly, but I'm not sure right. it's a matter of kind. And I think right. this is where I'm getting to, you have to look closely at, at what, not, not only what we're doing, but what, what the word is in which we say we're doing things. This democracy that, oh yes, right. what, what, what's We actually have to happening? be careful. We do have to be careful to, that's why I usually, um, it, it's a, that's why I usually come back to certain kinds of, we need to classify as analysis, right? We need to, uh, we need to understand that there are differences between you know, a, a regime in which everything is tightly controlled under military rule, a regime in which you have the freedom to say what you want, organize uh, environmental movements, uh, organize a free press, um, right. run for office. So that when we look at Indonesia today, which is the best example of democratic politics, um, I think many Southeast Asians would look at, at Indonesia and find that it's a place they'd like to live rather than in uh, the closed uh, environment, impoverished and military dominated society that say uh, Burma was for several decades. Of course. There's, 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 so, you know, that's, that's the end of the spectrum. It's really hard at the middle. Of course, there are trade-offs at some level, which is why from an analytical perspective, we try to define and right. to decide what are some of the minimal parameters that we think are important and understand what, is, what makes one a regime that's democratic, the other authoritarian, it usually revolves around free and fair elections and the rights that come, that come with it. Right. In order to avoid um, placing a template of what would be a, an ideal regime that we'd want to see there, which is what political science was accused in many ways of hoping for uh, a little too strongly perhaps 40 sure. years ago. Because the subtleties are the most significant things. Right. I mean, that's what you have to focus on. My perspective is that I'm reading a book like your book, yeah. again as a non-specialist, looking to be stimulated, yeah. looking to find things that I hadn't expected, mm -hmm. looking to find things that I hadn't considered, looking to learn, and looking to think about how I might take some of that knowledge and not only learn for the sake of learning and saying, oh, isn't that interesting? This is happening in Thailand and that's happening in, in Burma and so forth and so on. Mm -hmm. But to apply it in a way which makes me rethink my old uh, beliefs, the cliches, the, the, the beliefs that I have that I have not questioned. And so uh, this notion that uh, I, I'm not an anti-democrat, I don't believe in tyranny, I don't believe in suppression of the press. <laughs> I'm not saying any of those things, but when when I read this about this this former vice president of Indonesia uh -huh. and the account, which may or may not be 
be 100% accurate, but it doesn't, it, maybe you don't stand by it anymore, maybe you do, who cares? That, that's not the point. The point is I can imagine a possible world where there's somebody who is more progressive and says, you know what, we're going to let these guys in East Timor have their independence mm -hmm. because they are completely different. They're, they have a different religion, they have a different history, they have a, they have a, a different orientation, we've, in, we've invaded them, you know, <laughs> this was a mistake, we have to let them go. And he loses the election because of that. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking, that's a problem for this idea of the sacrosanct democracy that... that it is, comes. but I mean, I think, okay, here's where... What's interesting in that story of Habibi and why he let go uh, of East Timor is more that he would actually make that offer. I mean, the... Most states, and here we can talk about democracy at large, most states are very reluctant to let go of any part of their, um, uh, any, of any region. Sure. So allowing a referendum on, and knowing that the referendum, even though technically the referendum was on whether they were going to vote for autonomy, uh, a wide-ranging autonomy within Indonesia, but the implication being that rejection was going to be independence, uh, so allowing a referendum on independence is something that uh, has, has not been easy to accept even in Canada, in Europe, in, in most places that we, that we consider to be advanced democracies. So in fact the phenomenon of how states deal with their, um, their uh, ethno-nationalist or secessionist regions in Southeast Asia has been not uh, completely different from, from most states in that they tend to uh, want to keep uh, their, those regions. Now, what's interesting is that there's a vast array. Indonesia can have a lot of contradictions when it comes to how it's treated its regions that are asking for more autonomy or secession. So, uh, President Habibi uh, let go of East Timor under pressure from the international community, which had been asking for several years that East Timor, the question of East Timor be settled. Right. Uh, and uh, that kind of international pressure uh, could not be done in any of the other secessionist uh, conflicts that are occurring in Southeast Asia, whether it is Papua uh, in Indonesia, Aceh uh, also in Indonesia, the south of Thailand, or uh, the south of the Philippines, because all of these other areas are actually internationally um, recognized by states as being part of those states. So Habibi was in a, in a, in a difficult situation with international donors at the time, and uh, because there had been the Asian financial crisis of 1997, he had to, uh, in some ways, continue to have good relations as he was democratizing, as it was trying to restabilize the country. Sure. He had international donors uh, wanting a solution to East Timor to happen. It took all that kind of pressure for a president in Indonesia to decide we will let a, a referendum on independence. If you poll people in the Philippines, in Thailand, in Indonesia, they would all be strongly opposed to letting go of, of any of the uh, regions, uh, secessionist regions. I think the, the problem is, is less secession than what kinds of compromises they're willing to give to uh, people locally. That's the more surprising part and one that I think uh, is 
is a problem from a democratic perspective. So if you think of uh, the region of uh, Papua or Aceh, for instance, for years, um, Indonesia was built on the idea that institutions had to be homogenous across the whole archipelago, uh, and this was one state right. uh, and, 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 and basically one political system. And this was officially With, promulgated consistently. It was officially promulgated. So, but, but the problem is that in order to make that happen, Papua uh, was uh, integrated uh, after a sort of small, small uh, war, after the uh, Dutch um, ceded the territory a little later than, uh, than uh, the 1945. The rest of Indonesia had been independent uh, in 1945. And the Dutch had finally left in 1950, where they had retained uh, Papua. And uh, it was only in the 1960s that uh, the Dutch uh, were through a process of, um, well, they first ceded it to Indonesia, and then there was a supposed act of free choice that became, um, um, that the United Nations ratified uh, in 19. 61, I think, um, and, and as a result of that, uh, the Papuans, and, and because of the process by which this was done, Papuans were integrated to Indonesia through a selection of about 100 delegates, and they felt that they had not been consulted. Now, of course, it was a small group that sort of objected to, to this integration, uh, but they've been claiming since that they should have a revision internationally. Uh, of this, uh, this process by which they were integrated. Right. And now today, it's a vast majority of people in Papua who continue to reject the Indonesian state. Really? So if there were if a referendum? Given, they were... If there were a referendum, you, and it was uh, free and fair, you could be sure that more than 90% of Papuans, not people, not migrants that came from the rest of Indonesia, but Papuans themselves, would vote in, the, in favor uh, of independence without a doubt. Um, so I think the, the, the problem is that whenever they have tried to uh, negotiate with the Indonesian state uh, a new arrangement. Of limited autonomy or something like they that. They have an autonomy, but autonomy that came from uh, a, a, an act of parliament that wasn't negotiated with representatives from Papua. So they have a law. It gets complicated. They have a law uh, that is basically uh, called a law on special autonomy that uh, gives them a fair amount of powers and, and fiscal resources. But the elements of this was never really negotiated. It ended up being a, a sort of bottom-up process that got hijacked by the, uh, the, uh, the parliament, right. and then they got in 2002, whatever came out of, of the parliament. They've been rejected, many, including the governor of the region and many others, right. have been objecting to many aspects of it. Is that what rankles with them? Is it the process or is it actually the fact that they want more rights and more autonomy and more stuff? Or well, is it both? Yeah, you know, they get a lot of fiscal resources, but the fiscal resources disappear because there's no legitimacy to this act in some way. So the, it hasn't been the right framework for them to reconstitute political institutions that would reflect their needs. And so it's subject to a lot more corruption and, and, and basically uh, inefficiencies and basically uh, lack of implementation uh, because there's no, there's no buy-in from the Papuans and the Indonesian state is not very committed to, to making it work very well. Contrast that to Aceh, which obtained 
uh, a very extensive uh, autonomy law that was negotiated with the Free Aceh movement after it was uh, in a uh, war with the Indonesian state after, after democracy. Uh, and then after the ceasefire, they ended up having a very elaborate law where they can sit down and negotiate a lot of the terms. I mean, that is, of those groups that have been uh, mobilizing for more autonomy or secession, the Achenese have actually obtained uh, most in terms of institutions, fiscal resources, and any recognition of their difference within, within Indonesia, even though Indonesia is a very different place, but they obtained uh, some sort of special status, and, uh, and that has allowed them basically to, to feel that they can be part of Indonesia in a way on the terms that they wanted to be. Part of Indonesia. And is there an understanding of that within the Indonesian government right now? I mean, if 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 you were having a conversation with what's this guy SYB or whatever the the SBY SBY yes anyway the guy who's the the president of uh, uh, of Indonesia. that's Jokowi oh, did I miss one yeah there's an election that just happened oh well, I can't you be president. responsible for that for goodness <laughs> sake <laughs> oh okay well that's that's right. good for them so yes. so so, so Jokowi Jokowi is the way he. Uh, He's called okay. basically as a. So if you were if you were sitting down with him and if you were saying, would you recognize that that there were places that you uh, treated secessionist movements uh, clearly different uh, regions that that needed to to have more autonomy or that might for which it might be beneficial to be more uh, sensitive to their awareness? That there are places where you did this better than 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 other places. Uh, would would he say? I presume it's a he, right? Would, would, he, <laughs> would, would he say, yes, you're right, and we should do a better job with that, and I'm, I'm working on that, or would there be a denial? Well, they've, no, they've been saying, even the SBY was saying that um, there needed to be some improvements in right. Papua, and there needed to be some reworking of the okay. law. But there's a, there's a worry that in, in their mind that if you give too much, especially in Papua, that there will be they'll ask for independence. So, so there really is that, that concern about, um, about giving a platform to secessionists, whereas they didn't have as much that fear uh, in Aceh. And, uh, and, and probably because the history of injustice in Papua, or at least perceived injustice in terms of integration, um, is something they'll have trouble getting over. Right. Um, because they, they really want the international community to reopen that, that question. And, and I think ultimately they would see more power uh, locally as a platform as well to ask for some revisiting of the process of integration. Nice. But, um, but you know, it's a trend in the region that um, if you think about, the, the problem is a lot of times the central government will say that they understand the concerns, but then there's not a whole lot that gets done. For instance, in the Philippines, um, you've had uh, conflict with the Muslims in the south of the Philippines that goes back several decades. Uh, and under democratic uh, government, there was a first ceasefire agreement in 1996, which led to uh, one of the organizations fighting against the state agreeing to a peace signing a peace agreement with the state. Um, but it got poorly implemented as well. Mm -hmm. And that continued 
another organization rose and took its place. And it's only very recently that the government now has signed an agreement to, um, to try to form a new autonomous region with new powers that they, that they thought were insufficient from what was obtained in 1996. What do you do when you're uh, in a, the state of the Philippines um, in which implementing laws is already oftentimes uh, difficult? So they pass a lot of laws. The laws don't get implemented very well. Um, so these are, you know, a country like the Philippines is a democracy but a democracy that is not very well functioning very well, and you see it in, in when you see how how laws are oftentimes poorly implemented. But these, when you when you're dealing with uh, trying to find a um, uh, accommodating uh, demands from a, a group like the Moros uh, and um, and and a demand for an autonomous region, it's important that these laws get. Get, uh, get implemented properly and that the promises made are actually implemented. And the problem is you can, you can blame one side or the other. Sure. And there you go. Yeah. Do, do, you, do you think that secessionist movements in this region uh, will get stronger in general? Or do you think, or, or can you make any generalizations at all? Do you, because I know you've looked I don't think there's much, yeah, I don't think, the, I don't think one can make uh, generalizations. Uh, there, there's a whole, Spectrum. One, I don't think there's going to be more secessionist movements than the ones that are already there. Um, each one of them there have a, a a fairly long history of why they became secessionists. I've already mentioned Papua's history of integration. Aceh right. had other specificities. Um, the south of Thailand, it's really a cultural religious difference. They're Malay. They're Muslim. They've they've never been. Uh, their, their rights as Malays and as Muslims have been really curtailed. Um, uh, in the Philippines, uh, there was a sense of marginalization, displacement of, of Muslims, Moro Muslims in the south of the Philippines. So claims to land, claims to, uh, to recognition of, of their Muslim institutions mm -hmm. was uh, important. Um, so these are, are fairly long histories of, of, of regionally based groups that had a history of, of grievances. When you think of, of other regions, um, for the most part, they've been well integrated in, uh, in uh, the, the, the states in which they belong. So Indonesia tends to be an example of a country that successfully was able to recognize difference while creating some sense of unity. It got abused under authoritarian rule, but really the basis of the Indonesian state, recognizing different languages, recognizing different cultural groups, but then creating uh, a, a core around the Indonesian language uh, and, and the common history has been fine for most groups in Indonesia. So uh, it, it there's, there's really, there really are no uh, additional pressures for, um, for secession. The only other country that still has a very deep uh, set of issues is Burma. Burma has, but Burma doesn't have a, a clear coincidence between territorial concentration and its ethnic groups. So it becomes very complex when thinking about would these groups demand for secession? Well. Many of them are scattered in different areas. They're not mobile. They're just the way they are. They've settled through 
originally and through um, their history of colonialism as well as displacement through war. So they're integrated um, somehow in the well, broader spectrum. It's, it's, there are some states that are recognized, the Shan state and certain states for certain ethnic groups, but there's a lot of, it's, it's still quite mixed. So some groups, like the Karen, it would be very difficult to, to identify a clear Karen uh, area, whereas it's easier for other groups. So the, the Burmese are having a, an enormous difficulty um, thinking through, in this emerging democracy, uh, how they will be able to, to accommodate their uh, ethnic diversity. So will it be through recognizing certain provinces, having a federal system, will there be political parties? It's, it's a bit of an unknown. Is it, in your view, an emerging democracy? I mean, it, it, is there genuine will towards moving towards eventually a full and uh, uh, all-encompassing normal standard democracy at the end of the day? Or, or is this just window dressing to be able to allow the, the junta more time to uh, to, to cling to power. Nobody can really read very well the uh, military in Burma. So anything is speculative as to what kind of debates are occurring within the junta. Clearly, it came as a surprise when the junta suddenly decided it had to take a democratic route. There are two ways of seeing this. Either one sees it as being a very carefully planned process that started early in the 2000s where they actually did announce they were going to have a reform process. And for years, they were discussing, even with the opposition, uh, Aung San Suu Kyi and her party, uh, a new constitution. Now, the NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi withdrew from those discussions early on. And that process continued. And that's what eventually, uh, uh, um, that's where we are now. That's where we are, where the, the constitution was put into place and then they opened up. On the other hand, another way to see it is that, irrespective of that process, uh, it came still as a surprise that, that they're opening up as much as they are. And that would come from an erosion internally, economically, and institutionally from having a lot of uh, external pressure, sanctions for several years. Uh, it made it very difficult for the, uh, the Burmese military to, to continue to, to, um, to have its, um, uh, to, to manage the emerging protests that were occurring in, in Burma. So you had the Saffron Revolution, uh, which got them very nervous. If Buddhist monks were now demonstrating in the streets, it meant that they were facing more and more people who would be ready to demonstrate because of poor economic conditions. And uh, the sanctions the West imposed were starting to hurt more and more. So there are some views that, um, that it was the, the result of these kinds of, of sanctions and erosion uh, or, or, or more impatience internally that uh, more demonstrations that triggered this desire to, to open up. Now, that being said, uh, Tain Sen is seen as a reformer, and there are a few reformers who are uh, in, in control at the moment with, without doubt, many more who uh, wish that the process doesn't continue advancing as quickly as it's going. So, so what do you um, think? Where, where do you, I mean, what do you think were the motivations for this? You've, you've, you very right. skillfully set up the, the, the differing views, but where, where do you fall in, in this? What are your gut feelings? And I understand that you're, this is, this is just, since I'm talking to you, I'd like you to speculate. You know lots about these things, and I'd, I'd like mm -hmm. to just get your views. Yeah. I mean, my gut feeling is that 
there's no the, the military regime felt that it would it, it just would be facing more and more demonstrations. I think more Burmese were demonstrating on a regular basis since 1988. They lost, the military junta lost the ideological reasons why it was in power. Uh, it didn't have, it was serving basically the interests of the military, created its a, a military, a capital city that was serving basically the armed forces. The future in Burma was join the armed forces, so there's not a whole lot of future. Uh, at some point, they couldn't continue absorbing more people into the armed forces uh, as, a, as a future. They had to be able to uh, economically allow the country to advance. Uh, and Wasn't this capital city just created in the middle of nowhere because some guy's astrologer told them that he had to have <laughs> it? <laughs> so, it's just, so, I mean, the point is that the, the, the armed forces are just, uh, they, they probably came to the end of their, their rope, seeing that if they, they couldn't continue having the kind of um, closed uh, society and, and control over, over the economy and polity without giving a chance for others to, to, um, uh, to take part in, in, in some sort of political change or economic change. Now that being said, the Constitution very much maintains the role of the military. The Constitution that was put into place was inspired by the Constitution that was in place uh, or the, the model that the military used in Indonesia as its, its way of ruling. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, the hopes that there will be a real democratic change, I think, are, are I mean, I, I'm not sure that, I think they want a controlled level of change. They want to be able to absorb the opposition in some ways, but they don't want to relinquish control, so. I want to ask about Asian values. This is something which was all the vogue, I think, about 20 years ago, yes. 15 or 20 years ago. Uh, um, I don't have a sense of whether it's in vogue at all anymore. And, but uh, the thesis goes, at least as I understand it, that, well, Asians just do things differently. This was promulgated, at least in my recollection, most loudly by people like Lee Kuan Yew, who said, um, well, all of these things that you, you in the West think are absolutely necessary for the development of a modern state, um, that's just your way of doing things. We do things a different way. We're different people. We have different cultural values. And uh, thank you very much for your advice. But getting back to what you said before about normative statements and so forth, don't impose your particular views on us. We're fundamentally different. We have a different set of values and beliefs and so forth. We have Asian values. And these sorts of statements were assailed by uh, a wide variety of people who said this is, this is just a front for being able to uh, transgress universal human rights, universal human values. And in fact, uh, it's an intellectually bankrupt uh, argument said by somebody who's just interested in clinging on to power and using whatever leverage he might be able to, to, to do. Um, so, I guess I have a two-part question for you. The first, my first um, question is, in your view, when people like Lee Kuan Yew were talking about Asian values, is that really the case? Uh, were they just doing it as a means to an end um, and, and promulgating a view solely to be able to 
uh, justify what it is that they wanted to do anyway? And secondly, is there actually anything to this at all? Does it make sense as somebody who has studied Southeast Asia in great detail and throughout a wide variety of different countries and different cultural groups, can you say that there are some commonalities, there is some uniqueness to what it means to be at least Southeast Asian, if not Asian in general? I think the argument that cultural difference needs to be taken seriously when, when creating a democratic society is important, and that can justify a lot of differences. The Asian values debate, um, I think at the time, one of the reasons why it disappeared is that I, I agree with the view that it was a rhetorical device more than, than anything else. I wouldn't go as far as to say that, uh, that um, there's nothing to it. So uh, if anything, there are Asian values, uh, plural. They tend to vary from country to country, and they're certainly different from what you see in Europe or North America. Right but they express themselves very differently. And why it, it, it didn't work to be able to position uh, Asian values uh, as one sort of model that would be different from the West is that there was no consistent um, set of either uh, prescriptions or values that one can look at. Um, so uh, for Lee Kuan Yew, it came down to uh, a justification as to why it would be important to have a society that's led through choosing economic growth over uh, political freedom. And, and if he teased out his thoughts, uh, a lot of what you would find, he would be uh, delving into certain values that might resonate uh, in a Confucian-inspired kind of society. And again, that became very controversial. Does a patrimonial society uh, really reflect Confucian values? Does authority or order over freedom really reflect the Confucian ethic? I think those who are studying Confucianism would see that you can choose a number of different values in Confucianism, uh, and they won't necessarily be in the order that Lee Kuan Yew would have liked uh, to see them. So um, uh, there are scholars such as Daniel Bell working on, on Confucianism in, in, in China, looking at the democratic roots of, of Confucianism and, 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 or, and ideas of freedom. So I think the, the, the sense is that, uh, my sense is that um, it was useful as a way to try to position uh, societies such as Singapore, Mahathir Muhammad was quite in agreement with this as a way, as a rhetorical device to uh, reject the kind of homogenous view of democratic politics, freedom of political participation as the ultimate value over and above uh, economic growth or economic development. And I think from their perspective it was if you have to make that choice, and, and the argument, do, they, do you, right? I mean, the right. question is, it's not always a choice. Uh, but if you have to make that choice, maybe people will choose uh, to develop and have economic growth, even if it means that they don't have uh, political participation or political freedom. Uh, now, he didn't poll Singaporeans to ask them. Mahathir <laughs> didn't also in Malaysia. And it's only you know, post hoc you can say that there was a lot of criticism and a lot of support of, of both leaders. Uh, 
But you know, if you look at what, say, uh, an emerging democracy such as Indonesia is trying to do now, where it has to take Islam seriously, because that was also part of the idea of Asian values that when they were discussing the rhetoric, it wasn't only Confucian-based society, but you have a whole part of Southeast Asia which are basically Muslim and, and have nothing to do with Confucianism. Right. I mean, most Muslims, the largest Muslim country in the world is Indonesia. And, and the good news about Indonesia is that uh, there seems to be uh, an ability to have elections, to have freedoms of press association and many others while having a debate internally about what does it mean to be uh, an Islamic society? Uh, uh, what does it mean to be a majority Muslim society? How can we integrate Muslim values without, um, you know, while respecting the values of non-Muslims, while respecting uh, certain kinds of um, well-respecting democratic practices, and right. they, they've been able to do that. So it means that in some of the some of the legislation that will come out, um, they might seem more restrictive than here. For example, their pornography laws are going to be a lot more uh, restrictive than here. But the point is that uh, on many aspects, it creates a debate, and they have a societal debate and they're capable of having it within a democratic framework. And then they come out with laws that some are not happy about, but at least have been debated to some extent. It, it seems to me that even though people aren't using the word Asian values, the argument about whether or not one has to make a choice, or if one did make a choice, would one choose economic prosperity uh, at the risk of sacrificing some political freedoms, even though that's not in the public consciousness now within the framework of this thing we call Asian values, it is very much something that people are thinking about with respect to China, when they're looking at China and they're, and they're saying, here is, here is this enormous, uh, enormously powerful and potential, uh, this, this, this huge state, which is undergoing this remarkably rapid transition. Um, and they are doing it in a way which certainly does not jive with uh, everything in terms of fundamental principles that that, uh, that we promulgate here in the West, uh, are they doing it in a way which is in some way equivalent? Are they just going down the wrong path because they should have been doing this or should have been doing that? So it does seem as if it does seem as if that the context of that discussion is being played out right now with respect to China. That's that's just my my sense. Even if those words aren't being ascribed to it. Um, I don't know if you would uh, agree with that or, or not. So jump in if you, if, if you have something to say. Otherwise, I'll move on to the next question. No, I think I mean, China, I think that China, for instance, here's the dilemma with when you don't have a democracy. If you don't have debate, how do you know that you're having the right kind of path in the, or a path that reflects your own society uh, and the choices that you have to make? So we can say that in China, there are many arguments one can make. In China, uh, there's a long history of, of states that collapsed, of regions that became a, a place that's very, very difficult to manage. So one can, in all humility, say that just to manage, keep China together is a feat, because there's so many people and it's such a large place. 
And that could be one argument that one might theoretically use to say that if you opened up the kettle and had democratic politics, could you continue to have the kind of prosperity that's happening in China? But it's coming at a lot of cost, at a cost in which it's extremely difficult to uh, criticize human rights abuses in China, and there are a lot of human rights abuses. And uh, now we're seeing creeping uh, debate in China over environmental issues because pollution levels have become so high that mm -hmm. obviously they're getting a lot of demonstrations sure. and riots. And so the question is, once you have, uh, you know, so, so what are the mechanisms that allow people to have a debate with their with their government? And if if you're if you're too restricted, you can't can't make that choice. So it, it's easy for leaders, such as coming back to Lee Kuan Yew. It's easy for leaders after the fact when they're showing their accomplishments uh, and they see high levels of economic growth to make the claim that could not have been different. Um, but the, the flip side is maybe they're right, but we don't know. And there hasn't been the chance for a society to, uh, to debate it. And that's you know, the problems that I have. Well, the, what this also brings to my mind, again, as somebody from uh, on the street, as it were, on the outside, looking at this, is I think, can, is it a meaningful statement to say that there are broad brush, broad brush cultural differences in a region? Let me do that one more time because I made so many slip-ups. Is it a meaningful statement to say that there are broad brush cultural differences in a region? Um, however, however you want to define a region, however for that matter you want to define cultural differences. I mean, one extreme version is no, we're all exactly the same. At some fundamental level, we're all the same, we're all people, we all have, or at least most of us have two legs and two arms, and we, we hold the same things dear, and that there are different people um, and different states and different societies along some different trajectory towards enlightenment with a lowercase e. And, and, and so we'll all eventually get there, but any, any phrasing which says um, that uh, oh no, we don't do things this way, we do things that way. That's just can't in order to describe and hide, in fact, various different personal agendas that leaders have in order to cling on to power, yada, yada, yada. Um, or we could say, no, actually, there are places in the world that are just different. There are regions, there are collections, there are groupings of people that do things in a fundamentally different way. And when I look at, uh, at Southeast Asia, I'm struck by by two things. I'm struck by the fact that there is, as we said at the very beginning, there is a tremendous amount of diversity. There's cultural diversity, historical diversity, and so forth. And yet at the same time, there do seem to be some aspects of commonality that exist between various different countries in the region um, that certainly are quite different from places in North America or places in Europe. So does it even make sense to talk about cultural values within the region of Southeast Asia. Is that even something that, that is a, an intellectually coherent idea? I don't think that there are cultural, that we can talk about cultural values on a Southeast Asia-wide uh, level. There are too many differences in Southeast Asia. The cultural differences will be just as great between countries within Southeast Asia as they might be between some countries in Southeast Asia and here. I mean, the, the, with one exception, perhaps, they're all more religious societies, for instance, than we are here. Religion is serious, is taken seriously in all of these societies. But there are different religions. Yes. So, 
<laughs> so yes, to, to the extent that you can find common values that come out of a highly devout Catholic society in the Philippines, a highly devout Muslim society in Indonesia and Malaysia, um, you're going to find maybe some, 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 some common human values that are expressed in, in religious form and that at some level imbue some of the politics of the region. I mean, obviously uh, it is important to, to many of the countries in, in the region that uh, religion be sponsored by the state, supported by the state. And so um, we're not favorable to that kind of view in the West at all, right? I mean, we're, we, we believe very strongly in separation of religion and state. That's one commonality in Southeast Asia where you wouldn't find that many people thinking that the state has no space uh, in religion. Well, we, did, we, uh, we and, believe that now. I mean, right. 200, 300 years ago, exactly. it was quite different. Right. But aside from that, there aren't, there aren't a whole lot of, of commonalities. There are subgroups. So you certainly have the, 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 the debate within uh, countries such as Malaysia and Indonesia, as I said, is the debate that the Muslim world is having. It's about how far do you go in, uh, in, in recognizing uh, Islamic values and implementing them in legislation while having democratic politics. And, and Indonesia shines in the Muslim world in its ability to have a certain level of open politics, it's stable, and being able to, to have that societal debate. Um, the, in Thailand, it's a unique location. They, it's, it's less Buddhism than how Buddhism is represented in the monarchy as well. And the monarchy is the head of state. It's the symbol of the nation. And so uh, because there has been controversy over the, the political power that people around the king have had, uh, that has led to very serious divisions internally, uh, an attempt to, um, to bring some of the masses that were poor and marginalized in parts of Thailand into the political spectrum. So what we're seeing now in Thailand, and that started with the election of Prime Minister Thaksin, when Thaksin mobilized and used a lot of the masses that, uh, the, in rural areas that had never been fully incorporated into the political process, when he brought them in to support his party and that he challenged uh, the power of the middle class in Bangkok and those who were around the king, it divided the society very, very significantly. But Thailand, uh, in, in some ways, one sees this as a, a real politic situation. Basically, what are you going to tap into are you going to, in order to maintain power? But at another, Thailand as a country that came out of uh, a long history of without colonialism and where the monarch was the important figure, continued to be in a different way in modern, uh, modern Thailand and represents both religion and state. Uh, it's at different and odd levels that this challenge tends to threaten the state. Right? It's not just a question of politics. At that point, you're also threatening what uh, the monarch as the expression of, as well, Buddhist values, 
um, it has on all of Thai society. Right, so the, the deep crisis, the deep crisis is, 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 is both about um, a sort of real politics situation, who's going to win out in the end, and also a question of, of you know, what, how much does the king and Buddhism are part of the Thai nation, which is also incidentally coming back to some of the secessionist issues, why, it's, why Thailand has been the state that has the most amount of difficulty accommodating its Malay Muslim South, because its very symbols of the state are, are come together in sort of king, nation, and Buddhism in a way that accommodating a Malay Muslim South contradicts what it is to be a Thai nation. And, and therefore, uh, up until now, discussions of autonomy is non-existent for, uh, for the Malay. Uh, because from their perspective, it's such a, a coherent, well-defined idea of what it means to be Thai. And yes. it's so intuitively obvious that this particular group of individuals does not fit in with, uh, with that coherent idea. Um, the subtleties, as you've been describing them, and the complexities are enormous throughout the region. I don't know if it makes any sense to have any comparison between other regions and other levels of subtlety or complexities, and I'm not interested in going there. But given the fact that there is so much diversity and complexity and subtlety, I could imagine that someone in your position would be often frustrated by the simplistic framework that is imposed by people from the outside, namely the media, when you, when you read an article or hear something on uh, CNN or the radio that's talking about some of these areas, I, I could imagine that there would be a constant sense of frustration for you, that there would be a lack of appreciation of many of these subtleties that are actually going on. Is that in fact the case? Do you find that most parts of Southeast Asia are not represented faithfully and sufficiently uh, sensitively by, by the mainstream media in terms of conveying the subtleties of the issues that are at play? Or do you not find that there's a great deal of trivialization that's going on there? I think the biggest issue that I have with uh, the media is the under-reporting of Southeast Asia uh, in comparison to other regions. Uh, whether it's good news or, 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 or bad news. Um, you know, you get so few stories, at least um, if we look at reporting in, in Europe or in, uh, in North America about Southeast Asia relative to events that are happening in many other regions of the world. Um, so the fact, for instance, that um, we get so much press on um, on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and, and many of the failures of the Arab Spring. Uh, and that is a constant theme that we're finding in, in the press, continues to feed the issue, the idea that somehow there's something fundamentally wrong with Muslim societies. And then you come, you come along and you have a democratically well-run election with very little violence occurring in uh, the world's largest Muslim country in the world. And you get one or two articles to report that it's happened. It's usually accurate. Uh, but but it, what it does is that it skews perceptions about something as fundamental as the role of Islam in the world today. Uh, 
And we're getting a very, very, I mean, that is my biggest gripe, if you like, with the current circumstances, is, is really um, how Islam is being portrayed in the media. And, and it's, it's very much a, um, defined by events in the Middle East and on, on, on where violence is most prone, where intolerance is greatest, and where, um, where uh, countries are, are failing. And it gives this perception that Islam as a religion is a highly intolerant, uh, conflict-prone, conflict-prone uh, religion. And whereas, um, you know, you have in Southeast Asia, where there's Indonesia and Malaysia. Malaysia is not a democratic society, but it has a fair, a lot of freedoms. Uh, they uh, are, are, are certainly not implementing uh, Sharia in, in a way that uh, one would, would associate with in, in the Middle East or in Afghanistan or elsewhere. Uh, this is not, this is not uh, uh, societies that even in an authoritarian setting, such as Malaysia, are semi-authoritarian, is not exactly implementing uh, any kind of harsh uh, criminal law policies as a result of being an Islamic society or anything of this sort. In fact, even within Malaysia, there's a lot of debate about, about what it means to be in a, a society where Islam is the religion of state. Uh, and, and yet, um, you know, there's, there's a a free and flowing debate about the choices that people want to have in terms of you know, restrictions or fewer restrictions or more restrictions. In fact, there are not many restrictions on living in Malaysia when it, in relation to uh, what one needs to wear or, or many of the other abuses that we see in terms of women rights or, or other rights uh, in, 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 in some of the news stories. So, so that's probably my biggest gripe. And then Indonesia, of course, is a society where a, a lot of this gets debated. Um, so, so why do you think that is, by the way? I mean, what, why do you think that the, that, that the media are so intent on portraying Islam, uh, it, uh, they're so intent on portraying Islam in, in, in this one particular tension-filled, maybe more uh, sensationalist way, clash of civilizations, if you will. Um, is, it, is, it because, uh, is it because of, of historical precedent of looking at particular parts in the world and not other particular parts in the world? Is it, is it because of a more sensationalist orientation towards focusing on points of conflagration as opposed to peaceful elections that actually occur? Is it, is it intellectual laziness, or is it something perhaps more sinister or darker going on? Why, why is it that, it, it's a very good point, it seems to me, here is, here is a country of 250 million people, yeah. uh, the, the vast majority of whom are, uh, are Muslim, who seem to be peaceful, democratizing, uh, reasonably prosperous, uh, or at least moving in, a, in a, an increasingly prosperous way, not saber-rattling, not threatening their neighbors, uh, not having religious uh, wars here, there, and everywhere. And yet, you would think that in, in a global debate about the role of Islam in, in the 21st century, that should be front and center as, as an important piece of uh, evidentiary reasoning as part of our architecture, and yet it 
seems to be largely missing. So that, that would seem to beg the question of why is that not happening? Yeah, I think that at some level it's the media does go where the stories are most sensational. So obviously where there is deep conflict, where there's war, um, it will tend to, uh, to gravitate toward, towards there. And in some ways, um, since the Vietnam War, there hasn't been, uh, there have been occasional deep conflicts. Uh, you can think of in, in, uh, in the context of Cambodia, obviously the Khmer Rouge, the period of, of, of intense killings in Cambodia were also reported at the time. But from the time you get to the 1980s, it can, you know, on and off in, in Cambodia you had uh, civil war that was reported. But, but the rest of the region, uh, in a sense, uh, many of the countries in the region didn't have the kinds of deep-seated conflicts that tend to draw uh, the media's attention. So I think. I think in part it's just the nature of the beast that, of course, mm. the media goes where, where there's a story to tell. And a good news story is, is rarely one that, that the media picks up on um, over, over um, the war and conflict. Um, secondly, I think because of the, the few decades where you, you didn't have um, sustained conflict in a region like Southeast Asia meant that you don't have reporters in place that are right. as, as deeply um, committed to a region as, say, the Middle East. And where, understand the culture and the And understand the culture and so forth. And so, forth. Mm. so then when you come to, um, to uh, something like the role of Islam today, um, I think it's a little bit, it would take an enormous amount of, of will to go against what is the, the, the obvious stories emerging that make for, for um, maybe more sensational reading and the fact that reporters are already there and that it, it sort of feeds a, a sort of, okay, I don't, <laughs> I've lost my train of thought here, but. Oh, it, it's, you know, it's, it's a self-perpetuating cycle. Self right? Yes. It's a vicious circle. But one more question, because you've been very generous with your time, and I, uh, but I've, I don't want to push it too far. Um, and, and that is, given the amount of work that you've done in diagnosing and assessing a wide variety of different places in this particular part of the world, and recognizing strengths and limitations and weaknesses and strengths and so forth, um, what should be done, in your view, from the Western perspective, either through bilateral uh, communication, trade, diplomacy, through international efforts. If you were President Obama right now, or if you were Ban Ki-moon right now, what sorts of ways of engaging with different places in Southeast Asia would you be doing differently? Which particular places and what sorts of things would you be doing? In other words, what, I, what I'm really asking is, what are we not doing well enough? What are we in the West not doing well enough in terms of assisting, helping, developing, um, supporting, understanding in that particular part of the world? Uh, I think that what we're doing well 
And this, I think, is, Southeast Asia is a difficult, difficult region to engage bilaterally and multilaterally. And the reason is that where they do agree, that they came long ago with the principle of in, within ASEAN, if there's something to be said of ASEAN, because it's not a very uh, cohesive nor uh, strong institution, but one of the principles that they had within ASEAN is uh, this principle of non-interference in other people's affairs, which is an international principle in many ways, but they elevated it to right. another level. They made it explicit. They made it explicit, which, which means that they've been, they've agreed, uh, whether it's in multinational, multilateral forums or even with relations one, one another that strengthens the resolve when they're uh, dealing with other, other countries, uh, to oppose attempts at putting pressure on the way in which they handle their societies uh, politically. What that means is that what we've seen in the last 20 years, a lot more pressure um, on human rights issues, uh, pressures on accommodating minority rights, uh, and a host of other issues that we've, that we've seen, the United States, Canada, and the other countries put pressure on other countries. They tended to be a little more careful in, in, in the ASEAN context because uh, their, their own allies or the closest countries in which they were in the, in the, in the, in the, in the region would tend to resist those. However, uh, within ASEAN and, and even internationally, with Burma was an interesting uh, um, example of, of some change occurring in this respect. They went very, very carefully with Burma. There was a lot of objection internationally in bringing Burma in to, uh, to, uh, to ASEAN on the basis that Burma was a, a, a military regime that mistreated its people. Western sanctions were imposed. Uh, there was a boycott. And it's actually through the, the ASEAN's sort of softer approach of bringing Burma in that it gave an, an ability for the junta to actually re start reintegrating uh, a multilateral forum. And therefore, that helped some of the bilateral uh, relations. So what's been happening, and, and I think what's useful, and the United States has, has been supporting the process and many other countries, uh, if we're seeing the kinds of changes happening in Burma right now, I think it's, it's mainly because uh, there's been this kind of uh, acceptance of, of, of evolving on, on, on the terms of the reformers and, and just a slow-moving process, but a supportive one. Send resources except that it's not a perfect process. It could well be that the, junta, the, the military is right behind, but by engaging and by, and by allowing uh, or supporting the changes that are being made, as opposed to requesting more and pushing for, for, for more rapid change, it's actually having uh, a positive, a positive um, uh, result. And, and, and I think that when, Politically, that's about, I think that is the, the example of Burma is proving that it's the best example for political reform in, uh, in, in the region. It's really this sort of slow, slow engagement. Um, so that's what we've done well, or at least that's what ASEAN's done well, and that, that's what's been done well. So what, what, right. what do we need to do, if anything? Is there anything concrete that, that the West or, 
or international organizations or bodies can do better to better affect positive transition and positive movement broadly defined, however you'd like to define it in, in the region. Are there any policies that could well, or should be enacted? You know, in terms of economic development, um, there's a lot of talk about the Trans-Pacific Partnership or many other kinds of forums in which there's more discussion about uh, economic relations to the region. I mean, in fact, the more the region is integrated to the international system and sees an interest in, uh, in uh, economic uh, growth for their own country within this sort of uh, international context, the more it's likely to lead to results, um, to, to political change. I think that Vietnam, I mean, continuing to, uh, to uh, encourage Vietnam's participation in reform economically, Cambodia, we could push a little harder, but the problem is it gets, comes back to what I was saying before. You can't push very hard. We tried to push in Cambodia. The United Nations basically failed in Cambodia. And um, the fact that it tried to impose a UN-sponsored democratic model after the Civil War in Cambodia. This was in the early 90s. This was in the 80s. Oh, the 80s. Uh, early 90s. Yeah, really. Anyway, whenever, sorry. <laughs> uh, this ended up. Um, I mean, it failed because the there was not enough. It didn't. It, there, there was not enough uh, institutional setting already in Cambodia to to allow a democratic process to simply function uh, normally. So they were still deeply divided. The Khmer Rouge were still still there. It was very ambiguous as to how you could bring them in or not within the process. The opposition political parties had very little resources, little very very little power, and they were extremely uh, unsympathetic to the uh, to cooperating with Hun Sen and the Cambodian People's Party. So the the, 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 the fact then that you had one dominant player already in place uh, could then monopolize the democratic process until today. So so the the, the kind of externally external pressure Cambodia is always the example that within ASEAN external pressure. Or, or an attempt to, to impose uh, institutions from outside didn't work in Cambodia. Um, it in East Timor to some extent. It's a very different kind of setting. Um, it, it's usually seen an example of, of, of the kinds of failures of UN intervention. Uh, and, uh, but the flip side is this sort of gradual engagement uh, in, in Burma has been working. I would like to say that, that if we uh, encouraged more reform in revisiting minority issues, for instance, uh, Papua. There are still human rights problems in Papua. There still could be uh, better autonomy, uh, autonomous institutions in Papua. There needs to be a lot of support for uh, instance, um, if we want the Moro Islamic Liberation Front's peace agreement with the Philippine state to work, these institutions need a lot of support. I think the international, the UN, US, and others are aware of this. Uh, the problem is always how much support you provide in terms of advice, resources, before you get uh, accused by the local government of too much interference. So we're always sort of moving in a very slight direction.
for the most part, I don't. I'm not very critical of of um, of the policies that have been adopted towards the region. You, you talk in your in your book with respect to Indonesia, which you, you made mention of many times during this conversation, as really a shining light of democracy in the region. And you talk about how it started moving very significantly along that path when conditions became ripe for democracy, as you put it. And I think um, the example you just gave now about um, the intervention in Cambodia demonstrates, as you were pointing out, that the conditions were not ripe for democracy then. So perhaps there is some onus on anybody who wants to attempt to exert any leverage whatsoever, how, however that may be done, to at least recognize whether or not this ripeness may, may exist, as it were, on the ground. Is that a fair? I think we're getting more and more example. I mean, Cambodia now would be seen as, uh, it was for a while seen as a failure of UN intervention. Today would probably be ranked as less of a failure now that we have democratic imposition and failures in Iraq and in Libya. There's always room and to model. <laughs> so, so we end up now with, with a host of examples in which uh, intervening in societies to try to build democratic institutions is a very difficult, it's very difficult to get it to work. Uh, and what does it mean to be right? Now, I make the argument in the, in the book that we still think that a certain level of prosperity and middle class, uh, presence of middle class, is kind of a, 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 some core uh, um, factor that, would, that we think is, is supportive of having a democracy, but um, other places have, have been able to, to democratize and, and remain democratic despite being being poor and not necessarily having strong uh, middle classes. Um, so you do get examples such as the, the Philippines has been democratic in, this, in its own way uh, for a long time, despite for a long time being one of the least successful countries economically um, uh, when comparing to Indonesia, Thailand. It's catching up now, but for a long time it, it wasn't. Um, so I think the question then becomes for, for uh, supporting uh, democratic processes is a little bit of modesty. Uh, certainly, um, you know, East Timor could have gone both ways. East Timor, there was no choice than to uh, intervene because there was a referendum. Uh, and the problem was that the a segment of the armed forces of Indonesia refused the results, and they cooperated with local militias to basically uh, destroy a good part of East Timor. So, when left with no choice than to intervene, of course, of course, there the problem was uh, too little intervention, too late. Uh, the UN should have come much, much earlier in greater force to prevent the kind of of um, of destruction that occurred in East Timor. Of course, once in place, the transitional government was helpful. The, the UN transition was helpful in creating the kinds of democratic institutions that, that are in place now in East Timor. Well, that's great, Jacques. Is there anything that you would like to add? Is there anything that we've glossed over? or? No, do you think there's any, any part at one point you, you mentioned that uh, you thought that I was 
um, that we, I wasn't saying very much. I was, Is there teasing, a part I was trying to get you, trying to get you going. <laughs> <laughs> There's any part you think that? No, no, I think it's great. Okay, and and uh, no, it's, it's, not, it's not about that. I just wanted to, uh, I, as a general courtesy, uh, when, yeah. I'm, when, I'm, when I've put, when I've made someone sit and, and have to talk to me for a long period of time, I ask them if there's anything else they want. And, and, and normally the response is, no, I'm just so tired, I want to get the hell out of here. Um, <laughs> That's about it. But, okay. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed this reformatted podcast. As mentioned at the outset, this conversation is also available both as an individual ebook and as part of the ebook and paperback Conversations About Politics, along with separate discussions with Mark Bevere, John Dunn, Michael Fraser, and Josiah Ober. Those interested in more information about Ideas Roadshow are directed to ideasroadshow.com. While those who are curious about me and other projects I'm involved in are recommended to visit howardburton.com. Thanks very much for listening, and I hope you'll tune into another Ideas Roadshow podcast on the New Books Network soon. We release a new one each Wednesday.